If you have a Bible, open it to John 1. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. If you'll notice in the, in the bulletin, we always list the scripture readings that we are doing for our reading plan in the coming week. And, uh, and in the past week, we've been in two other Gospels. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew and now in the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we, we had this very uh, dense section of Jesus' parables. And um, it's, it's interesting that, that Matthew sort of collects them into one very uh, small chapter, chapter 13. And that includes two very small parables that take up only three verses in Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and how great it is and how wonderful it is and, and what that would compare to in our lives. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is telling us quite clearly, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It is like something that is worth everything. It, whether you find it by accident or whether you find it because, because you've been searching for it, it doesn't matter. When you find it, when you know what you have, it is worth everything in your life. We're often told by people that we are to put all of our eggs in one basket. That doing that financially is ruin. If that company goes down, then you have lost everything. And Jesus says there is one thing where there is there is good in putting all of your eggs in one basket, and that is the kingdom of God. Go and sell everything you have in order to gain this thing. What is it that makes the kingdom of heaven so tremendous and so wonderful? What is it about this particular kingdom that makes it worthwhile giving everything that you have for it? I would tell you that it is nothing more than the king itself. Now, John doesn't talk about that specifically. He, he's not talking about the greatness of the kingdom of God, but I do think that what he is doing in these four verses is highlighting the greatness, the goodness, and the glory, and the brilliance, and the majesty of who Jesus is. Here, John is trying to tell us how wonderful this man is, how important this man is, how good he is for you. And so we want to talk then about the brilliance of Jesus Christ today, the wonder of who Jesus is, and we do that by turning to God's word. In John 1, beginning to read in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is indeed the word of our God. So what is Jesus, what is John trying to tell us that Jesus is like? First, he wants you to know that Jesus is glorious. He wants you to know that Jesus is glorious. 
Now, many translations, when they deal with verse 14, many modern translations, especially the most modern translations that you can get, always use a sense of uniqueness. And so the ESV here says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now, most modern translations, as I said, do this. The Holman Christian Standard Bible does it. The, the NIV does it the same. It, there's a uniqueness, they're saying, to Jesus. This word in Greek, whatever it means, means uniqueness. That's not the way it has always been translated, and I would argue that it's not the way it's best translated. I have a friend in Kentucky who always, I I think of him every time I think of the KJV, because he always read the KJV. Uh, It wasn't that he was bound by it, he didn't think that Paul read from it or anything like that, but nevertheless, he always read from the KJV, and I always tried to convince him there are better translations out there. So every time I have to mention the fact that the KJV actually does something better, his is the only face. I can see him smiling at me and kind of winking at me. So... If he listens to this sermon, he will, he will get a chuckle. The KJV does this right, and modern translations are, are wrong in this. The KJV doesn't have the only unique Son of God or the one and only Son of God. This comes up again in verse 18, but rather the only begotten of God, the only begotten from the Father. So we need to talk about what this begottenness is. So to clarify sort of that old word, we talk about women giving birth to children. So the word begotten isn't in reference to the giving of birth because that's a woman to a child sort of relationship. But for men, men beget. Women give birth, men beget. And so it's a way of saying that the son has come from the father. Okay. When we say son came from the father here, what we don't mean is that he simply came into the world from the father. But we mean that he has always been from the father. So so to use a a kind of a different sort of language from this, we can use the word of generation is oftentimes what scholars do. And they talk about eternal generation, that, that Jesus as the son of God has always come from the father. We know that that's what the word means here in John, probably best because the early church fathers who spoke Greek better than anyone here and probably anyone alive translate and use the word this way. So in Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, we read this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the unique part, the only Son of God, and they go on to say, begotten from the Father before all ages. That word begotten is the same word that's being used here in John 1.18. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. So what they do is they say, listen, let's talk about what this word begotten means. And they clarify and they say, it means begotten, not made. Okay, so the same creeds would say that the Son has always been. That's why we talk about eternal generation. Generation makes it seem like there was a time when he was not and then he was made. But they say, no, it's eternal. He's always being made by, he is only made from the Father. Made is a bad word. He's only begotten from the Father. The Father communicates his essence to the Son. He always comes from the Father. So they talk about him being God from God, light from light. The whole idea of being generated from the Father is to say that all that the Father is, the Son is. That the unique essence of what God is, the Son has as well. And this is slightly surprising for us because there's a number of ways to talk about two things being the same. And usually sons and fathers are not that. 
I, I am a lot like my son and I'm a lot like my father, but, or I should say, my son is a lot like me. It doesn't work the other way around. I, I sometimes act like my son, but he more oftentimes acts like me. So there, there is a way in which fathers and sons relate to one another, but it doesn't always work that way. I, I, you're struck this about this kind of thing when you read through First and Second Kings and you hear about all these kings and you get one king who does everything right. And then his son turns around and does everything wrong. And then one dad starts out doing everything wrong and then does what's right. And then his son turns around and undoes everything. So one, one king will rip down all the Asherah poles and tear down the high place. And the next kid will come along and say, no, no, we need those back. And so it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but it rolls right down the hill. And it ends up a long way away. But this is oftentimes how it works in life. That sons are like their fathers. As a matter of fact, this is something that Jesus picks up quite particularly in John chapter 5. He heals a man on the Sabbath who is crippled. And Jesus has to explain why it happens on the Sabbath. And in John 5, 18, we hear this. This is why Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Notice how John puts this, making himself equal with God. When he says his own father, it means not the father of them all. He's saying he is my father. Jesus always called God his father, not our father, but he is my father. And therefore, he was unique in that sense. So Jesus is going to explain it to him. So Jesus says in verse 19 to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He says, listen, I'm only doing what God shows me what to do, what my Father shows me what to do. And as my Father shows me, I do it because I'm like my father. So the idea here is in our world, because of the difference in human nature, that my son comes out relatively like me and more like me than he does almost any other man. And likewise, my father to me. But if we were to make that thought perfect and complete, what we would get is that that son is always in every way and everything that he does exactly like his father. His father does something, the son does exactly what the father does. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here and exactly what John means when he says he is the only begotten son of God. He is God from God. He is light from light, meaning he has everything that the father has. And so this is why John says he dwelt among us. Why does he dwelt among them? Why did he come to be among them? That word is, is like tabernacled. It's, it's the same sort of root word as tabernacled, as though when God was going around in the desert with his people, they built him a tabernacle, right? A movable tent. And what did God do? He dwelt with his people. John is saying Jesus has done exactly what God did in the Old Testament. He is coming to be with his people, to travel with them for a temporary time. And he says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father. That he is giving glorious revelation of God to the people of God. In this, we understand why the word and son work so well together as two designations for Jesus. 
In the Old Testament, God spoke and communicated himself through words. So the prophets would repeat those words and he would tell everyone what he was like. And now he has an essence, not just given words, but given an embodied picture of what he is like. So this is why in Colossians 1, 15, we can hear Paul saying this, he is the image of the invisible God. He is his image. He is a picture. He gives us words and he gives us pictures. That picture happens to be his son. So why, why mention all this stuff again? What does this gain for us? What it gains for us is that Jesus then, because he is everything that the Father is, is the perfect picture of the glory of the Father. Everything that the Father is in all of his glory is embodied in who Jesus is. This is why John 14, 8 and 9, right after the famous, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Philip, totally misunderstanding, says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, come on, man. How long do I have to be with you before you realize that you see me, you see the Father? It says that he is full of grace and truth. This is likely a reference back to Exodus 33 and 34. After Moses intercedes for Israel, he has the audacity to look at God and say, hey, by the way, after I interceded for all these sinful people, if you wouldn't mind, can I see your glory? And God says, okay, I will. And he calls him up to the top of Mount Sinai and he covers him in a cloud and he passes by. He says, you can't look directly at my face, but you can see some of my glory. And the Lord passed by. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we read this. He passed by before him, and the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those two words are likely the words that John is working off of here. Steadfast love is his grace. He is a gracious God, as we will see, an incredibly gracious God. And he is true. He is faithful to what he has proclaimed. So Jesus is the embodiment of that. That which you could not look on and see, if you were Moses, is now come to the earth and dwells among us. The fullness of the glory of God is seen in Jesus Christ the fullness of, of that passage in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah is somehow taken up before the throne room and he looks up and he sees God and he hears the seraphim calling out back and forth, holy, 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 and the smoke fills everywhere and he knows how sinful he is. That is the same kind of glory that we find John saying is embodied by Jesus Christ himself. What he must have looked like. We expect God's glory to be of the Indiana Jones kind, the melt-your-face kind, right? We expect that he's going to destroy mountains simply by showing up or explode the sun or dry up the seas or roll back the sky or explode forward like lightning. And what do we find? We find a regular bloke who people sometimes respond well to and sometimes don't, who people question what his identity is. Isn't he just the carpenter's son? Where do we see his glory? John's very clear. I've seen it. He's not talking about we as in all of us. He means literally I, the, the people who knew Jesus. We saw his glory. Where did John see his glory? He saw his glory in, in pretty minute things. John 2.11, after changing water into wine, which indeed is miraculous, John writes this, the first of his signs, this 
Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. At the end of his miracles, so the first portion of John is the book of miracles, the book of signs. At the end of this book, in John chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, how does Jesus talk about this? Lazarus has fallen ill, and Jesus tells his disciples, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God might be glorified through it. So what happens? Jesus takes water and makes it into wine, and then at the end, he's raising people from the dead, and all of it, all of the miracles that he does, testify to his glory. It testifies to who he is. But ultimately, where we find his glory and we find out who he is, is on the cross. John 12, 16 and 23. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Meaning, he was crucified. They remembered that. These things were done to him. In verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of God to be, excuse me, the Son of Man to be glorified. What hour was that? It was not his resurrection hour. His glorification was being raised up on a cross. Chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in his self and glorify him at once. Again, that's in reference to the cross. See, the glory of God is seen not in the way the world sees glory. The world sees glory in power. The world sees glory in fame. The world sees glory in applause. God sees glory in obedience, in faithfulness, in truth. We don't see the glory of God in Christ primarily because we only see the glory of God as the world wants the glory of God. But John is saying he is glorious because he does what God always does. He is faithful and he is true. He's filled with grace and mercy for sinners. He does all that the Father asks him to and that is indeed glorious. We can't see the glory of God because we see with darkened eyes. Because we're more like the world than we are like God. But God looks at what Jesus does, even on the cross, and the frailness and the weakness of his flesh, and the anger and the frustration of the world. And he says, that is glorious. Jesus is glorious. Secondly, Jesus is greatness. He is greatness. Verse 15 is a really difficult verse. It kind of comes out of nowhere. If you were to read verse 14 and then read verse 16, the two things just flow so terribly well together. You wonder why verse 15 is there. As a matter of fact, if you were a scholar, you wouldn't just wonder why. You would say verse 15 shouldn't be there, and then you wouldn't have a problem. This is what scholars do, in case you don't know. If there's ever a problem that pops up in a text and you're a liberal scholar, you can just say it shouldn't be there, and voila, beautifully, your problems have disappeared. Unfortunately, that is simply a figment of their imagination because we have none, and I repeat, no indications anywhere in history that this verse didn't belong there. We have no manuscripts that ever don't have this verse there, and so there's very good reason for us to think that it's there and that it was there by the Apostle John's hands. So the question is, why is it there? Why start talking about John the Baptist? Why start talking about him and then quote John the Baptist 
as saying something that you are going to quote in context in just a couple of verses. So if you read over in verse 30, verse 15 says, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We read in verse 30, what does he say? This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Those sound pretty close. You know, why, why repeat it? The point, I think, comes from tracing the importance of John the Baptist. John was not just some loudmouth Baptist in the woods trying to make sure he could dunk as many people in the Jordan as possible. As noble of a task as that is, that is not the fullness of who John was. It's important to realize that while we kind of overlook John the Baptist, the early church clearly thought he was important. Very few details, very few, make it into all four Gospels. And John the Baptist makes it heartily into all four Gospels. He is the beginning of the Gospel. He's mentioned in every single beginning of every single Gospel, which means the early church couldn't rightfully tell the story of who Jesus was without telling the story of who John the Baptist was. That makes you really important. The early church at times, was confused by this. As preachers went out, they were preaching the baptism of John the Baptist and not the baptism of Jesus. So they would preach Jesus and then they would have them baptized for repentance, but they wouldn't have them baptized into Jesus, something Paul had to fix in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. So the early church knew of the importance of John, even if they misappropriated it at, the, at times, they knew of his importance. The greatest importance for John the Baptist historically and within God's salvation history is the fact that for 400 years before John the Baptist showed up, there were no prophets. We read in Amos 8, something we read a couple weeks ago for Sunday school. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God says, I will, I will pull back my word from them, and that is indeed nothing more than pulling back on the prophets. He will not give them prophecy anymore. They will search for it, but they will not find it. The book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament and likely the last book written in the Old Testament, closes with these two verses from Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, John in this gospel is not called Elijah. John is called Elijah in other gospels, and we will be dealing with that, looks like, next week. But, for the purposes of this, the fact that there is now a prophet who has arisen, whose whole purpose is to sum up all of the prophets, is terribly important. Even Jews notice the importance of having no prophets. Josephus talks about this. That although their history was written since Artaxerxes, and very particularly, so they, they had a minute history of all that happened in those 400 years. They aren't esteemed with the authority of our former writings of our forefathers because there has not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. In other words, the books of First and Second Maccabees are not counted as scripture because they weren't written by prophets because there were no prophets at that time. But John the Baptist was a prophet. 
and he showed up and he preached. So he stands like the other prophets to announce the coming Messiah. He is, in a sense, the best of all of the prophets because he gets to say, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Luke 24, 27 talks about these two great pillars of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Given that verses 16 and 17 are going to turn to the law and to Moses, it is important to realize that John the Baptist is mentioned here. We have here then the law in verses 16 and 17, and before that, the prophets here. John is asked who he is, and in 123 he says this, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He calls himself a prophet. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Just as the scriptures in the law and in the prophets bear witness about who Jesus is, so John does as well. And what does John have to say about the Old Testament in relation to Jesus? If he is the epitome of all that the Old Testament had, if he is like the Old Testament distilled into one person, what does he say about him? He says, he came before, or I came before him, but I'm telling you, he is better than me. Perhaps John does actually understand that Jesus came before him and that he is pre-existent, that he was the word made flesh. Either way, no matter how you want to parse it, he certainly means that he is superior. But although the prophets came before, even John the Baptist was born before him, Jesus is superior. He is greater in every way anything that happened before him, and indeed anything that would happen after him. So without Jesus, the Old Testament is worthless. It's, it's worthless. You, it has no value. If Jesus is not who he claims to be, and he is not what John has said that he should be, it, it is worthless. No amount of crying out in the wilderness for repentance is going to lead to anything. No calls for the ending of idolatry that we find continually throughout the Old Testament matter at all. None of the promises of blessings, no comforting words that you can get from them, no declarations of justice to come mean anything without Jesus being the one who actually enacts those things. Jesus is the one who makes all those things true. They are nothing but empty phrases and empty promises without Jesus. But when Jesus comes, he makes all of those true. This is why 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul can claim that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It isn't the promise that is precious, friends. The promises aren't precious. The truth of the promises are precious. And as great as the Old Testament is, the one who brings those things to truth, the one who makes them real, he is the one who is precious. He is greater than all of the promises because all of the promises find their yes and their amen in him. Third, Jesus is gracious. He is not just great. He is not just glorious, but he is indeed gracious. 
Verse 14 tells us that he is filled with grace and truth. And then verse 16 says, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Uh, word has really, that upon has really frustrated people throughout the ages. What does it mean, grace upon grace? The most normal meaning of the word is probably the meaning here, meaning in replacement. What you might have in mind is a story from the Old Testament about Elisha the prophet. It comes from 2 Kings chapter 4, and I'll read the first seven verses of that chapter. The wife of one of the sons of the prophet cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but his creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me. What have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing except in the house except a jar of oil. And he said, Go outside. Borrow vessels from your neighbors, empty vessels, and, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her sons, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. And you and your sons can live on the rest. The oil kept going. When you were done with one, you replaced it with more, more oil. Oil after oil. Oil upon oil. Oil replacing oil. It was never flowing ever flowing, that is. As a matter of fact, her capacity for oil runs out before the oil runs out. They don't have any more, any more bins. Go get the next Tupperware. There is no more Tupperware. It hasn't even been invented yet. So we're, we're out of luck here, right? We've got nothing else. You could cup your hands and pour oil into that, but otherwise we're out of capacity for oil. And what John is saying here is God and Jesus, much like that, There is grace upon grace. He is gracious. His his grace is ever-flowing. Your capacity for grace, your need for grace, will run out long before his grace runs out. God is a well, a full supply, totally sufficient amount of grace for everyone and anyone. And you are never to think that your sins are so bad or your wickedness so depraved or you are so far from God that his grace cannot save you. His grace flows for you. God's grace is indeed greater than our sin. There's an interesting explanation then that occurs in verse 17 and he's going to talk about how great this grace is and how it's grace upon grace What does it mean to be grace upon grace? He says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. So how does grace replace grace? He says, well, first you had the law. The law is incredibly gracious. Let that be known. The law isn't this sort of enemy of grace. and It's not the enemy of freedom. It is gracious. God didn't need to give it to us. 
Proverbs 22.6 says this, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it, which is not a promise, but a very good general principle, meaning that if you want your kids to grow up to be kind, train them to be kind, okay? Make them say thank you and please to people. If you want your kids to be well-educated, make sure you're training them in education. If you want your kids to be X, Y, or Z, train them. If you want your kid to be a sprinter, Train him to be a sprinter. I think it's a waste of time, but nevertheless, do it, okay? He can run real fast when he's old. So in other words, if you want your kids to become something, you need to train them to become that. And that's the way we typically read it. Now, I remember sitting in Old Testament when I was in seminary and having one of the Hebrew uh, PhD students come in, and he said that he actually thinks that that's a wrong translation of the text. And there's another way you can, you can read it. And I think that this is a helpful other way to read it. It's not necessarily better, but it is another way to read it. Train up a child in his way, the way he wants to go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So, in other words, if you treat kids like they want to be treated, realize that they're never going to outgrow that. If you give them what they want, they will always want what they want. You, you, in other words, if you don't train them, there is no training. As Pastor Doug said just last week, we don't need to be educated in how to sin. You were sinful from the beginning. There's no training involved there. If you let children decide their own path in life, the path that they will choose is one of sin. It is inevitable. Listen, God gave us the law because he knew without the law, we would always choose sin. So what did he do? He gives us the law. He trains us in the way we should go. The law says you ought to be this. You are not to be that. You ought to act like this. You are not to act like that. You are to worship this. You are not to worship that. Continually and ever presently, the law says, this is the type of person and this is the type of things you ought to think about and these things you are to leave aside. That is training up his children in the way they should go. That is an incredibly gracious thing that. We should never overlook it. There is one small hitch with that bit of grace though. The law was weakened by us because we can't do the things it tells us we should do. The law can't make us alive. It can't make us see. It cannot heal the problems that we have with sin. It certainly cannot intercede for us, and it cannot make us right before God. But what the law is unable to do, Christ does for us. Grace and grace. God is gracious in telling you how you ought to be. And then he's gracious to say, and I will make you so. This is why he says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Fullness of grace came from Christ. The full reality of God's graciousness to you is not just that he tells you what he wants from you. Not that he tells you this is who you are supposed to be, but that he makes it so. Continually through the Old Testament, we're taught from the end of Deuteronomy, which is a huge explanation of what it means for God to be gracious and truthful in giving the law to his people. From the beginning and ending of Deuteronomy, all the way through the Old Testament, we are reminded that God needs to remake his people. And it finishes with a flourish in Ezekiel 36 and 37, the valley of dry bones and the promise to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. It's, we are reminded of it in Jeremiah 31, just like we're reminded of it in Deuteronomy 30. You need to have a circumcision of the heart. You cannot do these things on your own. God needs to step in and do them for you. And in Christ, he has 
done that. There is no more graciousness than that, than doing both, telling you what he requires and then giving you what he requires. If I tell my kids, I will give you great things if you pay me 50 cents and then I slip them two quarters, it is all grace. There's nothing that they have done. That is grace upon grace. That is who Jesus is. He is the very epitome of grace. He is the very embodiment of grace. I, I know very well, very well, that what we've talked about this morning in Jesus being greater and Jesus being gracious and him being glorious have not, in my words, provided you with an accurate, hopefully accurate, but not full at any rate, picture of, of how Jesus actually is these things. That You're not leaving here with with a newfound respect for these things. Hopefully you are through the work of the Spirit. God can do what he pleases, but I realize the weakness of my words. And certainly in one sermon, trying to get those things across, well, we would always fall flat on that. But I am going to do my level best in the coming weeks and months as we study through the book of John to make these things so for you so that you will know that these things are actually true. That as we talked about in the beginning, you can search and search and search and find that pearl and leave everything else behind to get it. And maybe some of you stumbled upon it, not even looking for it, but here God shows up and says, this is a great treasure. Sell everything you have and get this. This is who Jesus is. He is everything that you could ever want. He is everything that you could ever need. He is better than anything that you might fill your life with. He's better than anything you're holding on to. He's better than anything else that you hope for. He's better than any other satisfaction you can get in the world. He is simply better. And it's not just my goal. It's my goal in the book of John because it's John's goal as well. In chapter 20, 30 through 31, again, we read, and as we finish the prologue, it is incredibly important that we finish the prologue by referencing what John is trying to tell us in the prologue with what he's trying to tell us in his gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written. The book of John is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So friends, let us come and believe and have life in his name. For Jesus is glorious, he is greatness, and he is gracious above all things. He is the one who reveals to us the Father because he was at the Father's side. He is the very epitome of everything that God wants to tell you and the very embodiment of God's greatness and his glory and his graciousness. Let us trust in that. Let us praise that. Let us give that glory, for it is for our good that he has come. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your kindness to us in Christ. We are thankful that you have sent your Son to be a sacrifice on our behalf, that we might know him, that we might see you, we might better understand who you are in all your ways. Father, I do not have words to give people sight and vision, but your spirit might. 
and can and does throughout all of the generations of Christian, giving them a vision of who Jesus is in his glorious preexistence, even through his ignominious death. He is glorious in all of his ways. We pray, Father, that as a people who are called by your name, we might see his greatness and his glory. We might wonder at the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Give us hearts for that. Help us with your spirit to see that even today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.